Okay. Uh, the, the question was, was whether one dharma, uh, how far it extends, does it extend to other religions as well, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or is it uh, something unique about Buddhism that the one dharma refers to? I think that, uh, for myself anyway, you could not, I can't answer that question uh, from the outside of a religion looking in and saying, is that the same, are the teachings the same, pointing to the same thing and simply a different language, or is they really pointing to something fundamentally different? It seems to me, and this has been my own experience in different Buddhist traditions, you really have to know from the inside, from the practice, because then you have an experiential reference point. And it's only from that place of experience that you can begin to see, yes, there may be different descriptions, but they're descriptions of the same experience, or not. If we're simply looking at a tradition from the outside, from the words, it's really hard to make a, uh, I think, a very wise discernment about it. And so when I've been using the phrase one dharma, for myself, I've been really limiting it to the Buddhist traditions that I'm familiar with. Of course, it's very easy to have opinions about things. <laughs> you know, and I might have many opinions, but not really based on anything. Uh, there is um, what to say I think there is evidence of it um, but for most of us it's anecdotal the anecdotes come from people we trust a lot. So for example, and this, this really has to do, or, or one of the ways, or the sources of evidence would be, you know, some of the powers of mind that arise and the ability to 
know other people's minds. Would that be, would that be evidence of it being transpersonal in the way you're using it? Okay, well, when you're sure of what you mean by transpersonal, <laughs> then, then I'll... <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, there's an interesting book you might read, which is... Um, there's a, a professor, I think it's... Where's Stevenson? The University of Virginia, or... Not sure, his name is Stevenson. I can't remember. University of Virginia. He's done a lot of studies and of past people's recollection of past lives. I don't know if you've read, read the book or not. There's some quite extraordinary stories of... Uh, especially children remembering the stories and situations uh, you know, of their past lives. And he, in, in trying to uh, research it with some of the principles of a Western scientific investigation, um, it at least makes you wonder. Right. If it doesn't, if if it doesn't seem, uh, you know, an absolute scientific proof, he goes into enough detail and is enough, takes enough care with that investigation. So it really, especially to a Western mind that doesn't particularly believe in rebirth, um, kind of makes one stop and at least consider the possibility, because the stories are so compelling, you know, of there being no apparent or obvious way at all that these kids could know the details, and then when they go back to check the circumstances. Uh, so it might be interesting, I, I can't exactly remember the name of the book, it was at one point maybe a case for rebirth or something like that. So that would be one, one interesting investigation. Uh, we have a friend, a Sri Lankan friend. I knew as a, uh, when I was in India, I knew him as a young boy. He was uh, about eight or nine, I think, when I knew him. When he was two, two and a half, he started chanting very complex Buddhist suttas in a dialect of Pali or in a way of pronouncing Pali that had not been done in like 500 years. And we have tapes. We actually have tapes from chanting, and they're quite remarkable because it's in this you know, very childlike voice, just in the most beautiful way. As he got a little older and started practicing a little bit, he uh, could remember his past lives, and he was a monk, as he recalled and, and said, uh, in the time of Buddhaghosa, who lived, I think, about 500 AD. Buddhaghosa was the monk who wrote The Path of Purification. He remembered all the details. He, this, this young boy, the Sri Lankan boy, then led uh, teams of archaeologists 
to places that he remembered, you know, from when he was a monk in that time. Uh, so something's going on. <laughs> he, he actually, he was just here in, in uh, early September, and we were talking, and it was, it was really quite remarkable. Just in the course of conversation, you know, we were just sitting, talking very informally, and he said, yeah, when I was in, when I was in uh, India with Buddhaghosa, uh, as if he was talking about being in Amherst last week. <laughs> so, Okay, the, the question is about self, self-image, no self, true self. I think it's helpful to understand that the word self, in my understanding, is used quite differently in a psychological, from a psychological viewpoint and from a Buddhist viewpoint. They're using the same word, but I think they're really talking about two very different things, so it can get confusing. Because in the psychological realm, having a good self-image, or having a strong sense of self, uh, is really important. You know, it's kind of a, a model of psychological health. What that refers to really has to do with a, certain, with a certain healthy balance of mind, a certain healthy ego structure in the mind. You know, and we, we're familiar, just in, it's one of the, the gifts of Western psychology to the understanding of the mind. And we know what it's like when there's not that healthy ego structure. But ego or self in that sense is not being used in the way the Buddhists use it. Because when the Buddha is talking about self or no self, he's talking about some unchanging entity, some unchanging something, reference point. And that's what the Buddha was saying, that's the illusion. You know, that, that there is some unchanging reference point behind experience. He's not talking about the healthy balance of mind, which in Western psychology would be called healthy ego, healthy self. You follow? So it's really using the words differently, but unless we're aware that they're being used differently, it sounds like they're talking that the two are in opposition, and I don't see them in opposition at all.
It's really helpful, I think, to remember and to live in the experience and realization that there are only six things that ever happen. There's sights, there's sounds, there's smells, there's tastes, there's sensations, and there's mind objects. That's really all that's happening. And they get played. It's like a, it's like a six-piece chamber orchestra. <laughs> you know, and as we go through life, this chamber orchestra is playing different music. You know, and so they play in different configurations and different melodies. But it's the same six instruments. So that's kind of a... Yeah. How do you say? A Buddhist way of saying that if we're actually staying in the moment in our experience and not lost in our stories and projections, whether it's about other people, whether it's about ourselves, whether it's about the future, all of that is mental fabrication. You know, and I hope that after these six weeks or three months, you have some very immediate sense of how the mind does that. You know, and the possibility of stepping out of that and simply being in the moment. You know, it's so simple. It's what we've been saying all along. Just staying in the moment with seeing, with hearing, with smelling, with tasting, with feeling our bodies being aware of thoughts, being aware of feelings. But the problem is we get so caught up in the movies of our minds, you know, in the projections. I mean, now, you know, tomorrow you'll be leaving and the holidays are coming with all, whatever that means for you, you know, in your particular situation. It would be easy to just kind of get caught up in the swirl of thoughts and emotions about it. But as, you know, favorite line of Manindraji's, the thought of your mother is not your mother. The thought of the holidays is not the holidays. It's just a thought. But we, we get pulled into our thoughts when we're not mindful that they're arising. We create these whole mind-world scenarios with all kinds of attendant emotions toppling forward, you know, in it all, it's no wonder it's exhausting. And the practice is so incredibly simple. Not easy. It's simple, but not easy. You know, which is seeing all that, and in the moment of recognition, it's just, okay, it's just here. It's just feeling the body. It's just a step. It's just a sound. It's just a thought. We create our worlds you know, through our mind creations. Sort of like, you know, the, the, uh, in cartoons, the, the thought bubbles. We're living, we're like a cartoon living in a thought bubble. And it is actually amusing to think of ourselves as being a cartoon. 
I mean, that's kind of the personality level, you know, manifesting. <laughs> and then just to come back to the basic moment experience. And we do it again and again, and that's our practice, and it's so grounded and so simple until the next moment where we get caught. What's amazing is how incredibly seductive these thoughts are, or emotions. You know, they arise and before we know it, we're lost in them, we're identified with them, we're kind of in the movement of them. And yet, in the moment of clear seeing, we see they're completely insubstantial, there's there's nothing much there. So that's the that's really the great moment of awakening, and again, this is this is kind of repeating what we have we have said often. Instead of judging ourselves for getting lost so often, for getting caught up, it's much more helpful to really take delight in each of those moments where we wake up from being lost, and really emphasize to ourselves and in our experience what it's like every time we've been lost. And then awaken. Oh yeah, that was just a thought. That was just some fantasy. That was just some anticipation. In the moment of waking up, of dropping back, to really feel the delight. It's it's like a moment of awakening. Well, as many moments of being lost, there are that many moments of awakening. Did you get that in the back? Okay. The question was about faith and trust. It's kind of a the general framework for the question. And then, you know, talking about the experience of really being in the present, feeling open, sense of not clinging, and having faith in that, having trust in that. But then you go along and then in a moment there might be a further moment of release where you realize, oh, there was some clinging after all the slush rather than the water. And so does that undermine the faith at all? You know, when the next time we're feeling very open or does it feel, having had that experience many times of being fooled, you know, does that undermine faith? Uh, It's a really good question because I think that faith in my way of understanding is not a conclusion. And so faith has nothing to do with the belief, this is it, or this isn't it. That's not faith. That's a belief, and be- or a conclusion. And 
my experience in practice is that my beliefs and conclusions are almost 99% incorrect. So, I just find them useless. <laughs> and I'm quite suspicious whenever my mind kind of comes in with a conclusion. Oh, it's like this. This is how it is. Faith to me is not that at all. Faith to me is the quality of being open to the mystery beyond our present understanding. You know, so it's, it's really that quality of openness that's not drawing conclusions. So that quality of faith actually is enhanced by, oh, you're going along, we feel very open, and then all of a sudden there's a dropping, and we realize, oh, there was some subtle clinging there. Rather than either berating ourselves, having been fooled, or jumping to a conclusion, oh, this is really it. Neither of those. It's just, it's appreciating the fact that the practice and our Dharma life is a continual opening to that which is beyond our current level of understanding. You know, and there's something so beautiful in that. Why would we want to It almost cheapens it to have a belief about it. You know, it's so much bigger than belief. That, yeah, just to, to rest in the openness, to rest in, in the whole mystery of the unfolding Dharma. Learning how to You got it in the back? Okay. I think that's a beautiful example of something that I call just the intuitive wisdom of the mind. Like there's an intuitive wisdom that's in all of us. And in so many different ways, it's just different aspects of the Dharma arise in us and it might be in that form you know where you just you wake up and there's there's just something in your mind which is kind of creating a context for the days the day's understanding you're not looking for it you're not thinking it out it's not particularly discursive it just comes intuitively 
You know, I see it a lot, and it, for me, it's one of the great joys of the interviews, because, I mean, people come in, and it's like this quite interesting parade of minds. <laughs> you know, and the range is extraordinary. And I really have, I don't have any idea what's going to come out. You know, you come in and report, whatever you report. I have no idea what's going to come out. You know, but just as you're saying whatever you're saying, and I'm just taking, you know, feeling the energy and hearing what you're saying and just taking in the whole gestalt of it, you know, something comes. And over the years, over so many years of teaching, I've really come to trust it. Because it feels like it's coming not from my thinking mind, but more from that place of just whatever level of intuitive wisdom I'm able to access. And I'm sure as we all go along, we access it from a deeper and deeper place. And so to begin to both recognize and also just appreciate that wisdom mind within us. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think it's a very... Yeah. Yeah. Great intuitive wisdom. Okay, just remember, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the, the quote I mentioned uh, the other night from uh, the great Tibetan master Marpa about how uh, you know, in, in a and I, was, I can't remember exactly, but it was something like you know, in an in a enlightened being uh, defilements are like lines on water in myself they're like lines carved in stone. Fortunately, even stones are made of clear light. And so even as we're watching all the machinations of our mind, and even as you're aware of the demons waiting at the gate and all of that, drop back into that place of intuitive wisdom, of insight, that all of the defilements, all of the demons, all of the thoughts are essentially empty. You know, so even as we're working with them, and we do need to work with them, but even as we're working with them, we realize that they really have no substantial nature. And that makes the working with them much easier. You can really begin to just dance a bit, you know, instead of feeling imprisoned. Uh, by them. That's why there's so you know so much um, emphasis, and it's so liberating 
to emphasize seeing the essentially empty nature of thoughts. Because when we don't see it, we just are driven by them, we're tormented by them. And when we do see their empty nature, this this just, you know, we smile. I'll, I'll just, one other way of working with thoughts, I was talking to somebody in an interview about it. Now one of, of course, the most obvious and common patterns of thought is the comparing mind. You know, and you've probably noticed it at least once or twice <laughs> this week. Well, from the Buddhist perspective, the comparing mind is an aspect of the kalesa, the defilement of conceit, you know, which in the Buddhist sense means just comparing oneself with others, just being better than, worse than, equal to, it's just the comparing function. Now, the conceit is so deeply rooted in the mind, it's not uprooted until one is an arhant. It's the last of the defilements to go. So that means it's, it's well well-rooted. But I've gotten to a point where I just love seeing it arise in my mind. Because every time I see, you know, that comparing mind, or my label it as, you know, mana, which is the Pali word for conceit, I feel like I'm actually, every time I see it and just unhook from it, I feel like I'm working on arhanship. <laughs> You know, okay, this is a defilement that's, that's right there until full liberation. So every time I see it, it's like, oh, good. You know, <laughs> another step closer. <laughs> so there's a way of working with the defilements that actually bring joy. Well, that thought. <laughs> Humor is a big help, and that very thought. You know, oh, this is going to take me up. That's just a thought. <laughs> you might make an experiment, a metaphorical experiment, of holding a hot coal in your hand. Is it hard to let go of? Probably not. If we simply pay attention to the suffering that's caused by holding on, and we see the suffering, it becomes a lot easier to let go. And all of this comes from mindfulness. It just comes from paying attention. It's no great spiritual perfection that's needed. It's simply paying attention. Oh, this is suffering. So I can remember them. <laughs> I think the question really is about uh, how long you're lost in the thought. I mean, if you can more or less be aware of that whole thing happening, playing in the play, I think if the awareness is there, it actually can be strengthening and reinforcing of the insight that the thoughts are empty. If you find that as, as you do that, you know, you start getting lost and you're spending more time lost than aware. Back to noting. <laughs> yeah. And so then, you know, you want to rein the mind in a little bit. So the degree of mindfulness, I think, is the, is the real reference point there.
Um, and I don't, I don't know if there's anything other than the kinds of things I talked about in the bringing the practice to the world talk, because all of those things in terms of the three fields of training, because each of those three fields of training are the way to stay awake in the midst of one's life. Uh, what typically happens on day 47? No, no, I know. But what, what, what's the experience that you're contrasting to the playfulness? <laughs> Not as spacious? I mean, one of the, th one of the uh, little techniques that I had suggested sometime during the retreat can really help, whether in your practice or out in your life, you know, in either situation, when you feel like you're taking your thoughts too seriously, I found, just as an exercise to do, it's very helpful to do, as I described earlier on in the retreat, you know, to do the thought game where you're sitting and you're not attending to anything but thought. You're just sitting, it's, you close your eyes, it's like you're sitting in a movie theater. And then you're just waiting for the thoughts to come. So you're not in the breath, you're not in sounds, you're not with the body, you're just sitting back, waiting for thoughts. And because all of your attention is focused on the arising of thoughts, it's generally quite easy to see them you know, just as they come. And you see the loud ones, and you see the soft ones, and you see the ones sneaking up from behind. And in that full attention to thought you know, as an object, it gets pretty light. Because in the awareness of them, you see that they're little more than nothing. You know, this, it's like there's really hardly anything there. And in that perspective, you really see that. And so you're playing with it, and it reminds you that if you're aware of thoughts and not lost in them, you really don't need to take them that seriously because they're completely insubstantial. Also, you can practice seeing all of your thoughts as coming from the person next to you. So cut it out. <laughs> I did that once. I was sitting in a restaurant. I was just waiting for a friend to come. And I was just sitting there, and I just had this image of all the thoughts coming through my mind, coming from the people at the next table. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> so it's possible to get really playful 
you know, in relationship to the thoughts. No, I think that's fine. <laughs> uh-huh. I, w- I think that you're using the word suppression in that uh, that's kind of loading your perception of what's happening. Sometimes there's just this huge amount of energy. It's a very predominant object. The mind is quite kind of a compelling interest in that energy, and so it's not getting distracted by thought. Well, I don't either. The story story is that Deepa Ma was walking and in the monastery, you know, she had this incredible samadhi, incredible concentration, and so she was so focused in the walking that a dog had grabbed her leg, and she couldn't walk forward, but she was not aware that there was a dog. You know, and I mean, my imagine—one would have to ask her to really know what was going on. My my imagination is that. She was so much on the non-conceptual level, and so just so completely in the sensation that her mind was not going to concept. But. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that one. Because the mind can be on a single object, seeing the changing nature. Because sometimes in practice, in doing vipassana, the mind just does focus. It can be just on the breath or just a particular sensation, but you're seeing the flowing, changing nature of it. When you're doing one-pointed concentration, you would not be focusing on the changing nature of it. Tell you my own dog story. <laughs> I, I, did I tell you my meta dog story? I did. I did. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> First six weeks. Okay, I'll torment the rest. <laughs> it's just I was I was out in, in Western Mass, you know, visiting a friend and lived out in the you know, on this country street and I'm walking by and this dog is barking, a little dog barking really fiercely. Yeah, and so I start doing meta. You know, be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy. And it just came over and bit me. <laughs> and I knew that it bit me. <laughs> anyway, for me, the lesson for me didn't have much to do with concentration. It had to do with what's authentic meta <laughs> and what's stay away, be happy, stay away. <laughs> Did you hear in the back? Okay, the four-point walking meditation being the seeing, hearing, and, and the whole body. Yeah, there are many methods. I mean, there are over fifty different methods of doing vipassana. You know, so there are just a lot of techniques. Um, so there's no no particular reason why it's not mentioned, and sometimes it is. You know, in in particular. But it is it is a good practice. So. <laughs> that in the walking, it's seeing instead of just focusing on lift, move, place, focus a moment of seeing, being mindful of seeing, hearing, soles of feet. What was the fourth one? Full the full body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are lots of ways of playing, you know, and it's just finding, sometimes you need to open it up a little more, sometimes you need to focus it down a little more, and as you practice in yourself, you see, you know, what's skillful at any particular time. They're all, they're all different skillful means.
I mean, I really uh, couldn't say specifically, you know, to what conditions were going on in your mind this morning. It might be that having this conversation on the fifth day or fourth day, you know, of integration rather than the first day, that already the system has come more into a place of equilibrium. Now, when you first come out, the first day or two of silence, it's, there could be a lot of different kind of descriptions of it, but it always feels to me like after periods of intensive practice, the, the vibratory frequency of the system is very high. You know, it's like the refinement of the energy just through so many you know, weeks of practice. So the whole system, it's a very high frequency. And so when things come and this may be completely crazy from a scientific point of view, so don't take it in that way, but this is just my image. You know, when things come in to this high frequency system at a lower frequency or grosser frequency rate, that's just what causes, you know, that that disturbance and all the headaches and and it takes time, it takes time just for the energy system to get back in sync with a daily life interaction. And when we're back in sync, then as things meet, it's not a disturbance. So I don't know, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's how I've experienced it very often. And so that's why we have it, or another way, it's like a decompression, you know, until we're yeah, just the energy of our bodies and our systems is in sync with the energy of interaction and conversation in the world. I mean, it's at, at other retreats when people have left, you know, directly after the retreat. I mean, it's a riot. You person, a yogi, can leave the retreat. Not so much here in Barry since it's country roads, but you know, in other places where they get back on the freeway and they're going thirty miles an hour. You know, and thirty miles an hour feels like it's. 90, because it hasn't, it hasn't quite <laughs> come together yet. Okay, yeah, last question. The question was about how to practice the five precepts uh, in daily life, especially the third around sexual misconduct or sexual abstinence, and the fifth one about intoxicants. How does one practice that in one's life if one is a layperson, not a monk or a nun? Um, I think the third precept the precept as a layperson off retreat. Like on retreat, we take the precept to refrain from sexual activity. Have we gone back to the other precepts? <laughs> okay, tomorrow we'll go back to the, <laughs> to the daily life precept of refraining from sexual misconduct. So that's a different level, and it, it really means paying attention, that we're not doing things that are harmful. I mean, it's often... Or, traditionally talked of as refraining from adultery. But I think it's a much more, there's a much more general principle involved 
in that we want to take care with our sexual energy, where there's not deceit, there's not dishonesty, there's not exploitation, it's, it's really we're using it as an expression of love, of kindness, of caring. So that feels just an essential part of our practice as lay people. In terms of the precept about intoxicants, you know, people interpret that there's a range. Clearly it means not to take things uh, that result in, you know, a lot of forgetfulness or delusion. Uh, So going out getting drunk is not really a great idea, and I think under any stretch of the imagination would not fall in the guidelines of the precept. Whether it also includes, you know, you have a glass of wine with dinner or a beer once in a while. There's a range of how we do it. And for myself, at different times, I've practiced the precept differently. You know, and so at times, I'm fine with just have a glass of wine or it's, it's no, can be with it easily. I've had other times in my practice where I wanted to see, okay, what would it be like to really live that precept impeccably, you know, and really abstain from all liquor, you know, or intoxicants of any kind. You know, and doing that for some extended periods of time, it was very powerful. So rather than think, oh, it has to be one way or the other, if we really see the precepts as training rules that help wake us up, you know, we can, we can experiment with our lives and really we create our lives in how we live. And so to take a creative to be creative with ourselves in the application of the precepts and to experiment. You know, if you've been on one side for a long time and have done it in one way for a long time, try doing it another way. And it's always to see, okay, what's the effect of this? I mean, (laughs) at the very strict end of interpretation, Saida Upandita described the only way drinking alcohol would be okay would be if somebody tied you down, poured it down your throat, and you didn't enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) So you can take that as one end (laughs) and work you know, find your place <laughs> along the spectrum. But I would really suggest taking the precepts it's a powerful training. You know, and the Buddha talked about it a lot, and it's that first field of training. And so rather than kind of just think of it in a pro forma way, oh yeah, I follow the precepts. It's really to look at each one. And as an, active, as an active investigation in our lives to see, okay, let me see if I can refine this one. How can I further understand this? You know, and do that for each one over time. It really brings a great Dharma awareness to our lives. So again, it's not a sense of a set of conclusions, but using them really to investigate the choices we're making in our lives. You know, and to see that we can experiment. 
and that that brings a lot of strength. So, thank you. I think Kamala and Steve, they need to leave before the sitting tomorrow morning. So they'll say maybe a couple of words of farewell. The schedule tomorrow morning, the sitting after breakfast will be at 8.30. Regardless of whatever it says on the sheet, it's 8.30 for the sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.